Okay. Um, just so as you know where we're at in this series, we are doing a series on Luke's Gospel all this school year. And um, we started somewhere around about chapter 3, and we've got as far as Luke chapter 6. As of next week, when Advent starts, we're going back to the beginning. We thought it was worth saving the Christmas stories for Christmas. So we get as far as Luke chapter 6, and it will be in the new year that we go on from chapter 6. I have struggled to prepare this morning's message more than I can remember for quite a long time, probably some years actually. Um, And I'll explain why at the end, it may become clear to you before the end why it's been a challenging message to prepare. But what I am going to do is take this message in two parts that relate to two different parts of the passage that we've got. The first bit is going to be a kind of stuff to do with the head, things, questions we may have, and some answers to them. And then the second part is going to be more about the heart and uh, provoking us to think about what's going on inside of us. So very much a message of two parts. The head bit is the easy bit. I didn't struggle with that at all, but the heart bit was more of a challenge. So let's read Luke chapter 6 and from verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there. And a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who'd come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that's how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Can you see why it might be slightly more challenging later on? But we'll start at the beginning, and I'm going to address a couple of questions that may be in your mind. Maybe you've already resolved these questions to your satisfaction. Maybe you've never asked them, but they are questions that are asked by people around us. Well, here's the first question that might come up. If you've read Matthew's Gospel, as well as this bit of Luke's Gospel you might spot some differences. I put the grand old Duke of York on the PowerPoint because 
He marched them up to the top of the hill and marched them down again. And when they were up, they were up and all of that. And uh, there's a difference between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. The sermon that we have beginning here with these blessings that are called Beatitudes uh, is where they've been on the mountain and then they've come down and they're on a level place. And it's in some translations, the title given to this section is the Sermon on the Plain. Whereas in Matthew's gospel, they're up the mountain and it's the Sermon on the Mount. Were they up or down? Neither halfway, no, when they were neither halfway, what was it? Thank you. There we go. That, what was going on there? That's not the only thing. In Luke's gospel, we've just read here that Jesus looked at his disciples and spoke these words of blessing and then of woe. Whereas in Matthew's gospel, he looks at the crowds. That's a contradiction. And it's not only a contradiction in the context, but also in the content. Luke has fewer beatitudes. He misses out some of the ones that Luke's, that are recorded in Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he adds in these woes, which Matthew doesn't mention at all. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Matthew left them out and added in the extra beatitudes. In other words, what on earth was it that really happened? And what did Jesus really say? Well, If that sounds like a complex problem, it's actually not too difficult. There are a couple of things that can be said quite quickly, which hopefully will make a lot of sense. One thing is that there was more going on in Jesus' life and ministry than any of the Gospels record. In fact, in John chapter 21, John writes in his Gospel, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world wouldn't have enough room for the books that would be written. There was lots more that Jesus said and did than was ever written down. And what we have written down in any one of the Gospels is a subset. It's a very short abbreviation of all that went on. And we can churn out text incredibly quickly and in great volume these days. We just press a print button or we tap away on a keyboard. Uh, But in those days, it was expensive to create the materials for writing, and it was incredibly time-consuming. If you imagine trying to write neatly on a piece of kitchen roll with a fountain pen, just just a little bit more difficult than any kind of writing that we try to do today, it was practically challenging with limited materials and technology that they had 2,000 years ago, 100 generations ago, as Dan pointed out to us earlier. And so the writing is not everything that happened. Quite often what you can see is that one gospel has said part of it and another gospel has said another part of it, And the two parts can fit together quite neatly. In fact, there's a place on a hillside next to the Sea of Galilee where there's a large open plain, a level place, that's halfway up a mountain. So it's not hard to imagine that the sermon was on a mount and on a plain all at once, halfway up and halfway down. Uh, Jesus preached many sermons and... I think we can imagine that just sometimes he may have repeated himself a bit. Not always saying something different because he had a message that God had given him that needed to be proclaimed in all of the towns and villages. And neither would we expect him to use exactly the same words every single time. So there there should be some variation in the sayings of Jesus that we would find in the Gospels. Those are some fairly easy answers to the contradictions that are genuinely there. At the same time, most scholars accept that what the gospel writers did was to take fragments of real testimony and remodel it into a purposeful 
and interesting narrative, which sometimes included changing the order in which they took place. Now, for those of us who've been brought up, which is all of us really, since the 19th century, most of us, <laughs> for those of us who've been brought up to think in a rational age where accuracy and getting all the things in the right order, A, B, C, D, E, F, etc., spotting any gaps and all of that, this can bother us. The idea that perhaps John, in his gospel, placed the cleansing of the temple at the beginning rather than the end because it helped tell the story well, that can trouble us a little bit. It seems like the gospel writers are being a little bit cavalier with the truth. But it might help us to realize that in the ancient world, people were not bothered in the same way. They'd never been taught algebra or careful logic of philosophy and such like. And it didn't trouble them in the same way. And therefore, for the evangelists who wrote the Gospels, it would not have felt to them like they were being cavalier to switch things around a little bit. Now, those of us who value truth, those of us who want to submit to Scripture will naturally prefer the former kind of explanation. That is, well, it all kind of fits together somehow. And many of the contradictions that we see in the Gospels can indeed be fitted together that way. But sometimes it feels quite strained to do so. And we don't need to feel intimidated by the suggestion that sometimes the Gospel writers moved things around and went about telling a story both of those kinds of explanation are compatible with a godly attitude of submission to the scriptures. So we needn't be troubled when we see these contradictions. The best thing that we can do is hold the different gospels in front of us and say, praise God, not only have we got these different stories, but we have the opportunity to compare them and to see if there are further lessons to be learned from the comparison. Does that make sense? It does to Steve Bigu. As do all theological truths. Uh, great. So that's the first question. And as I said, a little bit more intellectual at the start here and a little bit more heady. I'm going to go even further with my next point, which includes some percentages. I hope that's okay for a Sunday morning. Okay. There we are. Why not? They're supposed to be Robin Hood. One of many Robin Hoods. Here's another question. Why not read the Gospels just like they're legends? Why worry about whether they're history? Why does it matter? In any case, we spend a lot of our time enjoying reading legends and watching films of them and so on. C.S. Lewis, famous man from this city, used to say that there were three choices concerning Jesus, that because Jesus has told people things that led them to believe he was God, that rather narrows your options down. If you speak to people and you know they've taken hold of the idea that you are God incarnate and you leave them with that idea in their heads, there are only three possibilities. One is that you're mad, that you are, in some way, you have some kind of um, loosened grip on reality, and you don't really understand what's going on, and you are deluded to think that you're God when you're not, in fact. So Jesus maybe was, was mad. The second thing C.S. Lewis said was, well, if he's not that, maybe he was bad. Maybe he knew full well that he was deceiving people and he was happy to let people believe that he was God when in fact he knew he wasn't. Perhaps because he got money from them or some other benefit. So maybe he was mad. Maybe he was bad. It's hard to see what other option there could be other than that he was telling the truth and was indeed 
God incarnate. And C.S. Lewis used to say, well, look, those are your three options, really, logically. And then when you look at the incredible moral teaching of Jesus, which has rung down the ages, it's inconceivable that he was a nutter. And it's inconceivable that he was a trickster. So what are we left with? C.S. Lewis has been dead and gone a while now. And there's something else that is commonly said, that actually there aren't only three options, there's a fourth option. The fourth option is that it's all a legend. That the stories were made up by someone at some point, and that there were alternative stories about Jesus that were suppressed by church leaders who had an agenda of staying in power. Dan Brown suggests in his novels, if you've read, what are they called? The Da Vinci Code and all of that. Now, to be fair to C.S. Lewis, he answered that in his own time. He said, as only English literary professors can, um, I've read more stories than you have. And I'm telling you that there was no such style of writing a hundred generations ago that the whole idea of people writing stories like that really only crops up centuries later. And so if you're going to say that Jesus was a legend, what you're actually saying is that there's a whole style of writing and a whole subculture that flourished in the ancient Near East, which only found expression in these four Gospels and is otherwise hidden from view. Which is a nice argument. I prefer one with percentages in, having a scientific background. And here we are, coming back to Luke chapter 6 very clearly. There is amazing evidence in just these first few verses that Luke's gospel is authentic history. I wonder if you spotted it. And it's in these names. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James John, Philip Bartholomew, Matthew Thomas, James son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Now... Um, I'd just like to ask you a question. Can I have a slide, please? Um, Can you tell me what were the most popular names for boys last year? James. I'll tell anyone if they get it right. James. Yes, well done. Jack. Oliver is the top one. What else? Any others? Sorry? Thomas. Yes. Also, this is very good. Well done. George, yes. William, yes. This is impressive. (laughs) Sam, no. Yeah, you've got the PowerPoint, Jeremy, so you don't count. (laughs) Okay, should we have them all up? Oliver, Jack, Harry, Jacob, Charlie, Thomas, Oscar, William, James, George. If the 12 apostles were chosen today, they would be more likely to have these names. The apostle called Charlie if that were today. Obviously, some of those names have carried on over those hundred generations. The reason that some babies today are called Thomas or James relates to this story. It didn't just drop out of nowhere. Okay, let's just try something that may be slightly more challenging. Bearing in mind that Judea was and is an area roughly the size of Wales. Um, And given that uh, Galilee the region where most of the apostles came from was a region with a separate culture and identity, much like Wales. Let's try again with the 10 most common boys' names from Wales from last year. Dylan is top. Any others? David, no. Alan, no. Reese, yes. Lloyd, no. Yain, no. Jack, well, the tr- you're right, but only if you spell it differently, but we'll allow that. Any others? Gareth, no. Oh, did someone say Owen? Yes. Very good. Yain, no. Well, let's have a look at them, shall we? Dylan, Harry, spelt differently. 
Ossian, never heard of that before. Reese Morgan, Jack, spelled differently. Thomas, spelled differently. Gethin Owen, Kai. Um, there's a point in all of this, which is that it's quite hard to get names right. We did really well. Uh, you did really well. I just looked them up. You did really well with boys' names from the whole of Britain last year. But actually, when you start looking at regional variation, it starts to get quite tricky. And the idea that these stories were made up a century later or even later than that faces a, a kind of like an empirical test. There's a question that we can ask here is, did they get the names right? Because archaeologists have looked all over the ancient world and found all kinds of names being used in commercial contexts and on script, um, inscriptions on uh, walls and all of that kind of stuff and found out what names were actually being used in different times and places. If you, can we click on? And then one more click as well. If you're really interested, you can get this book. It'll cost you about £125. And it's called The Lexicon of Jewish Names in Late Antiquity, Part 1. And it covers the few centuries before and after Christ. And one of the things that it tells us is there was really stark regional variation. At the time that Jesus was uh, alive and ministering, if you happened to be on holiday in Egypt, or indeed a refugee in Egypt, as Jesus was as a child... Um, The common names were names like Sabbateus amongst Jews, Pappus, Ptolemaeus, Samuel. We don't get any of those in the Gospels. They were the Egyptian Jewish names. If you look at the names that were most common in Palestine, not looking in the New Testament, but looking at all of the other evidence that there was about which names were common in Palestine at that time, can we have the table? We're just going to look at male names. The same sort of thing is true for female names as well. The two most common male names in that time were Simon and Joseph. And the other evidence from that time suggests that 16% of all the people, all of the men alive at that time, were called Simon or Joseph. In the New Testament, we look at who's there. 18% of the people in the New Testament are called Simon or Joseph. That's quite remarkable. The same kind of thing is true if you take a slightly longer list as well. Not only that, there's more to this. If you had a really rare name, like Thomas, as it was common now, rare then, if you had a rare name like Thomas, you got called just plain Thomas. No need to say anything else about you. Everyone knew who you were. But people with common names, like Simon were given a second name to help make it clear who they were. And so here we have it in Luke chapter 6. Thomas is just called Thomas. John, another rare name. Philip, another rare name. It's just John. It's just Philip. Simon, there's two of them. Look at that. And it specifically says Simon, whom he called Peter. Simon gets another name. And the other Simon as well, Simon who was called the Zealot. You see, going on in the New Testament, exactly what was going on, as archaeology has shown us, in that time and place, and getting it on the button. And it's not easy. We couldn't do it for another part of our own nation uh, for last year. But the writers of the Gospels get it absolutely spot on. If we go through the rest of the New Testament, we find, with every Simon that's mentioned, Some other second name, there's Simon Peter, also called, when he's not yet being called Peter, he's called Simon, son of Jonah, just to clarify. There's Simon of Cyrene, Simon the Zealot, who's here, Simon the Leper, Simon the Sorcerer. They're all given these other names. And in the New Testament, those other names, those second names, are only given to people that the archaeology tells us had really common names at that time. In other words, they get it right Consistent, the New Testament gets it right consistently in a way that would be incredibly hard to make up afterwards. Or indeed, if you just happen to be a couple of hundred miles away. Are you with me? This is quite good to see. In Matthew chapter 10, we even see that where there's a pair of brothers, James and John, who are both sons of Zebedee, which is a great thing to be in life, 
James, who has a common name, James is a common name, John was an unusual name. How does Matthew put it in chapter 10? He lists them like this. There's James, son of Zebedee, oh, and his brother John. Is this making sense? Okay. You literally couldn't make it up. Um, That's what we see in the Gospels that are in the Bible. Of course, there are other Gospels that people wrote. There are, there's the Gospel of Thomas, not in the Bible. Gospel of Mary, not in the Bible. Gospel of Judas, not in the Bible. And people have argued that these were valid alternative narratives that should have been included in an overall picture of what Jesus was like, but that the church, in its controlling authority, somehow suppressed them. But the thing is, those other Gospels get the names plain wrong. So the Gospel of Thomas sets about adding a second name to a rare name like Thomas, when that was quite unnecessarily and wouldn't have been done, The Gospel of Mary fails to add second names to really common names like Mary, whereas in the Gospels we have loads of Marys, and they all get other names, don't they? There's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum. The Gospels we have in the Bible have a ring of truth about them that the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary don't have at all. And the Gospel of Judas just uses a whole bunch of names that just weren't used in that time and place at all. They are inauthentic, and the Gospels that we have in the Scriptures are authentic. And there's evidence of that even just in the list of the names of the 12 apostles. There you go. I bet that wasn't the point you thought I'd make. (laughs) But hopefully, for those of you that have stuck with my logical argument, um, it's encouraging. If you want to look at more, Peter Williams, who came and did a lecture on this here, which is how I first heard about these facts and figures. That same lecture can be found on a website called bethinking.org, and you can find it if you're interested to find out more. That concludes the head bit from this morning. We need to turn to the heart. After naming the 12, Luke continues the story from verse 17 of Jesus' ministry of power talks about how people came to hear him and to be healed. Those troubled, verse 18, by evil spirits were cured. The people all tried to touch him because power was coming out from him. They came to hear him and they came to be healed. The kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians says, is not a matter of words but of power. If people aren't being healed, if people aren't being set free, then... uh, then we don't see the kingdom of God there. The kingdom of God is a matter of power and not just of words. But as ever, whenever the kingdom of God comes in its power, there is a need for some words of explanation. People could interpret the miracles in a whole variety of different ways. And so Jesus then, having performed these miracles, starts to preach, starts a sermon. He has something to say as to, these, to these crowds and to the disciples, as they come to him seeking his power to touch their lives, uh, it's like he says to them, you want my power, but now let me speak to your hearts. And that's what he goes on to do. Verses 20 to 26, I'm going to read again. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you'll laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that's how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. 
It's interesting to me, and maybe to you, that when a study was done recently by a man called Alan Richardson, should you wish to track this down online, he tracked the experiences of people more mature in years who were leaving churches like ours. By which I mean churches that aim to believe the Bible and are also aiming to be lively and kind of faith-filled in our expression, expecting God to do stuff. He asked people who'd been in churches like that and were more mature in years and who'd left, how come? Why did you leave? And what he found was that people of a certain age found that that kind of, yeah, the kingdom's coming, did not connect with the more complex realities that they grappled with in later life. Whether that was their own health or challenges in their wider family or whatever it may be. So here's another question. Keep going. How do we hold together faith in the power of Jesus with the experience of suffering? How do those things fit together? What Alan Richardson pointed out was that to do that takes a more mature faith. And what we find in these verses is Jesus pointing out what a more mature faith looks like. A faith that can hold together passionate expectation of triumph and victory and we're going to kick the devil's butt kind of faith with the ongoing experience of some stubborn, slow-changing, or even unchanging realities. So I'm just going to draw out a few things from these few verses. The first one is this, that this is clearly not a call to be depressed. However you may feel when I read those verses, it's not, it's not a kind of Eeyore's manifesto. It's not that the most godly people are those who are most pressed down by circumstance and that anyone else is shallow. It's not saying that. And we know that because of verse 23. It says, rejoice in that day. Which day? The day when you're poor, hungry, weeping, and hated is a day for rejoicing. The experience of all of these challenges isn't expected to leave us glum, though you might expect it to. And if that seems like an impossible ideal, an untouchable outcome, well, in Acts chapter 5, in Luke's second book, he records what happened when the apostles were brought in to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the religious authorities at that time. They'd been um, rebuked for what they'd done in talking about Jesus. And it says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. So they were living it. Whatever this mixture is, this mature faith that can face suffering and still rejoice, whatever that looks like, they were living it. It's not just a pipe dream, but it's something that we can approach ourselves. So firstly, it's not a call to be depressed. You knew it wasn't a call to be depressed, but I thought it was worth saying that. Secondly, it is a call to look beyond earthly realities. Verse 23 again What is it that leads to rejoicing and even leaping for joy in the midst of these challenges? Well, it's because we know that we have a reward in heaven. Poor and hungry, poor and hungry disciples of Christ are vastly better off than today's social elite. That's not just because our social elite face a mansion tax if we get a change of government. It's because their blessings will end. Anyone living in a mansion now won't be living in it forever. I mean, they'll die or it'll get taken off them or it'll fall down or 
You know, they won't have it forever. It will end. And that's what Jesus says, doesn't he? If you're rich, you've already got what you're going to get. You've received your consolation already, is what it, it says in some translations. You've got loads of stuff, maybe, but it's stuff that's going to go. It's not going to last. Whereas those who are disciples of Christ, even though we're poor and hungry and weeping, we've got a good future. The future is bright for us. Heaven beckons. The end of the story is not only that Jesus wins, but we're part of the victory celebrations. We get to be in heaven with him. The rich are happy now, by and large. But the significant fact is that their material joy will not last forever, but the joy of the disciples will. So, there's a call to lift our eyes, isn't there? Above current earthly realities and see something else that is equally true, a promise that extends beyond our current troubles, indeed beyond this life. Here's another thing. Focus is on spiritual qualities. A few elements here of building up something of a more mature theology of faith and suffering. The focus is on spiritual qualities. We can as I said, gain quite a lot from comparing the differences between the different Gospels. Rather than being bothered at contradictions, we can learn more by comparing and contrasting. And we can do that here between Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, where Luke simply says, blessed are you who are poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Where Luke says, blessed are you who hunger now. Uh, Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for righteousness. So we know that within Jesus' teaching, he took this message and focused it on spiritual things, not just material things. And through that comparison, we can see that it's not that laughter and wealth and popularity are a problem per se. It's not that they are in some way evil. It's more the attitudes that so often go with them that Jesus has his laser-like focus on. Uh, Elsewhere in the scriptures, we read that wealth can be a spiritual handicap, a spiritual disability. For several reasons. Uh, In the parable of the sower that Jesus spoke, he said that those seeds that grew up a little bit and then were choked, were choked by the worries of this life. And the more stuff we have, the more there is to worry about. You don't worry about whether your pension fund's growing unless you've got one. You don't worry about whether there's a leak in your roof, like we have at the moment, unless you own one. Because if you're just renting it, it's someone else's problem to fix. So the more stuff you have, the more wealth you have, the more there is to distract us with worry and anxiety. It's not that the wealth itself is a problem, but it, it can be a major distraction. In Proverbs chapter 30, which is in the Old Testament, but it's the thing that Jesus quotes when he teaches his disciples to pray and says, give us today our, teaches them to pray, give us today our daily bread. That comes from Proverbs 30, where it says, it goes on to say, give me today just what I need for today, because if I have too little, I'll be tempted to steal. That's a problem. But actually, if I have too much, I may forget my God. So wealth has the danger as well of dulling our spiritual awareness and making us think that we're all right when actually we're not because we feel okay and that clouds our understanding of our genuine spiritual state. So the comparison of Luke and Matthew 
shows us something else, that it's, it's not just about our material, it's not just about how much money we've got, it's not just about how much food we're eating. But then coming back to Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't make it all spiritual. Luke is clear that this is about poverty and hunger and weeping. And so he succeeds in making that second point, that all of the wealth and happiness of this life can get in the way of greater blessings. And it prompts us to ask the question, which is more important to us? For many centuries, there was a regular pattern seen of rich people. And in, you know, going back centuries, the rich were even richer in their castles and their lands. And the poor were even poorer. Rich people reading the words of Jesus and feeling it in their guts that their wealth was getting in the way. Giving it all away and becoming a monk or a nun. Giving it all away and becoming a beggar. That's actually the kind of poverty that this word means. Blessed are you who are poor. The word there means so poor you've got to beg. It's that kind of poverty. An example of people who've gone before us some of them today get called saints, is that they were prepared to put their wealth aside when they felt it was getting in the way. It's not that the wealth itself is wrong, but if it's getting in the way, let's get rid of it. Because its blessings are temporary. And there's something eternal, which is better. Blessed are you when you're poor. For yours is the kingdom of God, Luke writes. Lastly, then, there is a call here to faithfulness. This is here, I think, most clearly in verses 22 and 26, the last blessing and the last woe. In these, Jesus envisages his disciples under pressure from the society that they're in. Some of the troubles that we have, we have just because we're human, whatever they may be, sickness, debt, perhaps, people just not liking us because that happens. Some of the problems that we have are because we're Christians, because the spirit of God in us and our reading of the Bible compels us to say and do things that others in our community find objectionable. It's interesting to hear this week what went on in the university. There was an attempt to have a debate about abortion. And uh, there was a protest to even close down the debate from happening. There is opposition to certain things that Christians will hold to out of faithfulness for Jesus. And Jesus envisages this and he makes it clear to his disciples and any in the crowds who are listening that he is setting everybody up for some conflict. That however well we respond to all of these things, there will still be conflict. And I don't know, I'm not going to ask you to put a hand up if you're a people pleaser because that will be complicated for you because I'm asking you to. So that's a complicated thing. Uh, but some people, it's generally the more lovely people, the people that we all like spending time with. Those are the people who often want to make everybody happy and who find it difficult to think that being a Christian means leaving some people unhappy with us. And yet it's there. Jesus takes time to underline it. Okay, I've got to the end of that, um, and I'm keen that we respond practically to all of this. this mature, what does a mature theology of suffering look like? Well, it looks like people who are praying, actually. It doesn't just look like people that know stuff and have worked it out in their heads. 
A mature Christian theology of suffering is always expressed in profound praying. So I put this picture of these birds here. Um, Jesus is encouraging us to embrace a profound hunger um, which is uncomfortable. So how can we sum this up? Can we just have the whole list, please? I would like to suggest to you that practically we need to take time to name our aches, the things that trouble us. See, sometimes the things that are painful to us, we just don't want to touch. If you've ever hurt yourself, we all have, and you're bruised, and you're wondering, I wonder how much it hurts now. And there's only one way of finding out how much it hurts now, but there's a hesitation to go there. And it's instinctive to think, well, maybe we'll just let it be, and it will work itself out. And indeed, it may well do. But there's a need for us to be open about our feeling of powerlessness, our hunger, the things that we see are lacking. I don't know what it is that you feel is lacking. There may be some things for you yourself. It may be that you're currently lacking work. And you need some work. Other people are saying, oh, I'd love that. Because you've got too much work. And you're overwrought and overwhelmed and don't know what to do. Maybe some people are in the wrong work and you feel it. And you don't know how you'll ever get out of it. Uh, it may be the other personal things that are common. Uh, the, just think, these are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. People in debt. People um, who are fighting unwanted sexual desires. That, that they're there and they don't seem to go away, however much you try to discipline yourself. Um, for some people, actually, when I talk about the aching and longings in our hearts... For you at the moment, it's more focused on other people. If you've got children who are not walking a straight path in life, who've gone off the rails in some way, maybe it's that. Maybe your heart is breaking for people who are oppressed or for young people or children, whatever it may be. These are the things that I'm talking about. And we need to give ourselves space to name those things as griefs to acknowledge that these things cause us to weep. Some people weep more easily than others. Huh. Part of my challenge preparing for this morning, I said that this was one of the hardest things I've had to prepare for for a long time. As I've prepared for this morning, I just felt God taking... I nearly put a picture of this up, but it was really... I, I, like when you had a bandage or a big plaster over something and, and it gets taken off. And you look full on at the trouble that there is. That's been my consistent experience all the time. As soon as I started praying for this morning, preparing for it, and even, even a little bit beforehand, God was just bringing to my attention all kinds of things that I care about profoundly and are wrong and I can't fix them. It's not been a pleasant experience. But I believe that that's where these verses lead us to name our aches and to face our grief, not to allow the riches that we have to distract us or dull us from the realities that are there. There's a journey here of growing in knowing just how much we need God, feeling deeply our need of God, and then turning it to prayer. So what I'd like us to do now I'm going to pray that God would give us the ability, the courage, to face those things that are painful to us. These are the things that when we think about them, we immediately try and think about something else. We don't want to have to think about it, but it's there. What God wants to do with us this morning is to grow our capacity to look at those aches look at them face on and turn to him in prayer 
not intimidated by the struggle, but finding courage and strength in God as we bring those things to him in prayer. I hope that makes sense. Remember some years ago now, maybe as much as 10 years ago, there was a man called Bryn Franklin who was stood here and he was telling us as a church that we should pray. He was preaching about prayer and he said that we should pray like these birds are. Just this kind of, ah, ah. What happened in me at that time was my head said, good point. And my heart said, I'm not going to that place emotionally. Just not going there. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live with that, that raw an experience of prayer. And so I understand that there are... I, I've changed in 10 years, and I'm sure that I'll change in another decade and another, and go on. I mean, so for some people, facing up to everything that lies before you and worries you is too much. And I think it's important to say that so that I don't leave some people with an impossible burden with the challenge that I'm giving this morning. But there is a call here. Blessed are the poor. Let's be open about our poverty. Blessed are those who hunger. Let's allow ourselves to feel the, the pang of hunger for something better. Blessed are those who weep. There's no shame in weeping. Father God, teach us how to pray. I, I ask that our instinct would be like that of Jesus, that on facing challenge, he prayed. I pray that our instinct when we face challenge would be to pray. And I pray that we'd learn more of our dependence on you, that we wouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed. There's no need for us to be ashamed in your presence, God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no fear with you because your love drives it out. I pray you'd rid us of those things that get in the way. I pray that you'd give us the grace now to come before you, to open up our wounds to name our longing in prayer. That we might connect our faith with whatever suffering we experience and see. Take us deeper, I pray. Take us deeper. Don't leave us being a shallow people. But Holy Spirit, we ask that you come touch our spirit and lift us up to pray. I'm going to suggest we have a couple of minutes of quiet but that when you are ready to pray just get on and do it. Whether that's sat where you are quietly, silently yourself or maybe you've would help you to put words on your lips or to sit with someone else. Maybe put an arm around someone else and pray with them. One way or another, let's take a few minutes to pray about the things that really matter.